Joy, oh joy, beyond all gladness, Christ has done away with sadness. Hence all sorrow and repining for the Son of grace is shining. Good to be with you this morning, to spend a few uh, minutes with you in the Word today. I don't know if you have ever read any of the poems of Christina Rossetti. The group of artists in England that she hung around with, she and her husband, Dante Rossetti, he is a painter, she's a writer and a poet. You might know her very famous Christmas carol, In the Bleak Midwinter. That was a poem that she wrote, and it's so dearly loved. It actually has two melodies. People love it so much they want to sing it in two different ways. Well, she wrote a little, a short little poem that already as a, a fourth grader, my teacher made us learn. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's like once it gets in your head, you can't get it out. It's called The Wind. And I bet some of you know it. Maybe you, when you were in fourth grade, your teacher made you learn it too. And the second verse of it goes like this. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But <laughs> this is so cool. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. There you go. Now you can't unhear that either. And it might just get stuck like an earworm in your head and you can't get it out. But it's just a, a sweet little way of saying there is such power in something that is invisible. Sailors in the age of sail and canvas could not see what was driving their boats. They could just see the canvas foof out and the prow leap forward into the water. You can't see the electricity that runs through the wires in this room. You can experience the illumination because the lamps are on. Hopefully you're warm enough. I suppose we could turn the heat up maybe just a little bit more next week for you. But the electricity that powers the blowers on our furnaces and lights up these lights is invisible to your eyes. You can see the wires, but you cannot see the power moving through them, can you? but it's very real, it's there. You cannot see the gravity that keeps your backside planted on this pew. You can jump up if you want, you can leap up in the air, but an invisible force is gonna pull you right back to the ground. And of course, every year you get older, you, your leap into the air will be just a little bit less, won't it? Until the time slowly comes when you can't leap at all anymore. Gravity, not just a good idea, as they say, it's the law. There are invisible things going on that we cannot see that, of course, enrich and make our lives better. You cannot see the radiant heat from the sun. You can see its light, but you cannot see the radiant waves of warmth that even on a cold day like this, hopefully, is going to melt all that snow off our sidewalks. I want to talk to you about invisible stuff today. In fact, Christmas... It seems awfully invisible, doesn't it? it? It seemed like it didn't change anything. Everything stayed so much the same, and it was as bad as ever. There were four little bursts of miraculous communication when God told the world that the deity was now had arrived in human flesh. Back in the back corner of church, you can see an angel uh, saying, don't be afraid. She's bringing it. She's got like a palm branch in her hand. That's an artistic symbol of peace. And he, the angel is saying, 
Don't be afraid. Glory to God in the highest. Today is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Next week, we're going to hear about the special messenger of a bright shining light called a star, but it wasn't really a star. It was like a personal light bulb, like a personal idea bulb that led a small number of nobility from the Parthian Empire into Roman territory to visit the Savior. Only they could see it. And it clearly was not a star because it was low enough to the ground actually to point out a house. Uh, so we call it the star, and the Bible calls it a star, but it really was just some kind of crazy, miraculous bright light that God sent. Okay, so that's two. Uh, when Mary and Joseph took their baby for the fulfillment of the Jewish legal requirements that accompanied the birth, they met a guy who we assume was elderly. It doesn't say that Simeon was old, uh, but he talks and acts like an old guy. I mean, I'm resonating more with Simeon all the time. And uh, so we always kind of think whenever he's portrayed, he's always bald and has this huge white beard. And I get that. And so that's fully what I expect to see in heaven. I'll be disappointed if Simeon looks young. Chris, we'll, we'll all be young in heaven, right? And the fourth is the one I want to talk to you about today. The fourth miraculous prophetic identification miracle to show that something extraordinary had just happened comes to us today through an elderly woman whose name is Anna, or in Hebrew, it would be Hannah with two H's on either end. It's the same name. Chen is the Hebrew word for grace. So uh, if you or any of your relatives are named Anne or Anna or Hannah, your real meaning behind your name is God's amazing grace to you. And this woman is the daughter of a man named Phanuel, which is uh, how the name of Peniel in Hebrew comes out into Greek. Peniel or Penuel is the name that Jacob gave to a region after he had been jumped by God himself and basically wrestled with God. And uh, he got a new name. God nicknamed him Yisrael, that you struggled with God. That's what Jacob's new nickname meant. And it became such a powerful nickname, it was used for the entire nation. After that day, they were called not Jacobites, but Israelites. And Jacob called the place in Hebrew, Pnuel. I have seen the face of God, is what that means in Hebrew. He was so shocked. And you know, then he got his hip dislocated. God put a special move on him and popped the socket on his hip that pretty much wiped him out. But uh, Jacob wouldn't let go of him. His arms still worked. And he said, I will not let you go till you bless me. So he called the place Face of God. And that's Anna's dad's name, Face of God. Isn't that a pretty cool name? Face of God. She was from the tribe of Asher, which is kind of encouraging, I think, because Asher's one of the 10 tribes that sometimes are called the lost tribes because they were taken off into captivity in Assyria. And they, as at least in large groups, they never came back. But they weren't all lost. And the Jews still kept track of their genealogy. They were all very proud of their tribe. And Penuel, Phanuel, and Hana, Anna, were both proud of being Asherites. Now, what are Mary and Joseph doing in Jerusalem? Uh, by the way, you should be paging around in your Bible to get to Luke chapter 2. I want you to know where to find this really cool story. Three things. There were three rituals 
for babies that God built into his old covenant. Their worship in all essentials was just like ours, but they had very different outward manifestations. You and I come into a building to worship, although you can worship while you're driving or at your home too, of course. But our corporate worship, our our joyful and musical worship is inside the building. They would go outside the building. The worship life of the people in Jerusalem was focused on the courtyard. Only the Levites and priests could go in. And only the high priest could go in to the holy place, to the most holy place. So when they talked about people being at the temple, it's really mean outside of the building. God invented participatory worship for them. It was like helping the people of Israel in their long wait for the fulfillment of their national identity. Every teacher of elementary school children knows that there are various different, what are called modalities of learning. And the, the least ambitious teachers stand up in the front, like I'm doing right now, and just talk to you. What I'm doing to you now is the, I, won't, I could say the laziest or the simplest form of communication. Because you sit there passively and I talk to you, right? Interactive learning is much better. Teachers who've been in the game a while know that when the kids are not only passively listening, but they're, they're interacting, there's a conversation going on, like talking back and forth. Like I would say, do you follow what I'm saying? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Three people's learning just got marginally better. The three brave people who answered me and said, yes, you just got a little more out of today's message because you're more personally involved. School teachers know if you get your kids physically involved, with their hands, they will learn even more. If you get them somehow walking around and you're able to do things that they're in motion, they will learn even more because the more pieces of their body that are invested into the learning process, the more they're going to retain in their brains. God knew that long ago. So he invented a worship style that was intensely interactive. As a living drama, you participated. And because the central idea he was trying to get across is that the salvation of the world is going to come through the shedding of the blood of an innocent victim where God's law and gospel, where God can have it both ways, he can furiously punish all evil and crush it, but he can also show mercy to the people that he still loves unconditionally. And those are conflicting aims. And God got it done by the concept of a substitutionary death. All those animals, as you, you know this, right, were all stand-ins for Christ. But while the, the people of Israel and anyone else who was in on their worship style, while they were waiting, they would participate in the slaying of an innocent victim. And you had to participate. You had to bring the animal. You would watch it be slaughtered. You would watch the priest catch the blood. You would watch some, a little, some of it or part of it or all of it burnt up. And this, this was very dramatic. I'm sure the children who went for the first time to watch a sacrifice carried out in the temple courtyard at the great smoking, burning barbecue pit called the altar of burnt offering, they would never forget that moment. Because it wasn't just you sitting in a desk somewhere listening to a lecture. You are participating 
in the death of an animal and were assured that the shedding of its blood meant that God was going to spare you. And the blame for your evil and sins was on the substitute and you were free. But because it was just an animal, it had to be done over and over again. Now, when a new child came into the world, uh, there's more sin in the world now. And it's as though God wants you to realize we're going to use childbirth to reenact the importance of this. And, in, and God invented three rituals involved in birth. And Jesus, as a good little Jewish boy, his Jewish mama and his Jewish stepfather brought him to participate in what God had set up. Number one is circumcision. The cutting of human flesh, a little superfluous flesh, unnecessary flesh in the male reproductive organ that is done today for any reason whatsoever. The parents may or may not choose to do it if they feel like it. Back then, it was not optional. It was mandatory. It was an act of faith. You were risking being an outcast and not being part of the, the people of God, part of the covenant people, if you did not do that to your boys. In fact, if you became part of the Israelite nation as a full-grown male, you had to, sorry to say, um, undergo that ritual as a male, as an adult, which would bring a little more discomfort, I would think. But the idea is not just, it wasn't God just pushing people around. The entire reason for existence for the Israelite people was one, to be guardians of the Torah, guardians of the Bible, of the word of God. The world was literally going to hell, but God said, I want somebody to be listening to me that I'm talking to and who believes me. Your mission is to believe me and through your priesthood and through the Levitical teachers, I want you to transmit the faith. I want you to be a beacon and sharer of the message to the Gentiles with whom you come in contact. So it wasn't exclusive. It wasn't to keep other people out. It was just so that at least God had somebody. Their second mission was to be the fulfillers of God's promise to Abraham that your descendants are going to be the vehicle by which the entire world is redeemed, which is bought back. A couple of weeks ago on Advent, I talked to you about the Bible's term, the seed of Abraham, uh, literally his sperm. And ironically, Abraham as though had, like, had Christ in his body in seed form and was passing it on until the time would come when there would be a miraculous virgin birth. So the, Abraham's job was to pass on his bloodline and his DNA so that at some point there would be a Jewish woman at some hazy point in the future and then God the Holy Spirit essentially became the father, the begetter, uh, the, the one who, uh, who enabled Mary to conceive without the aid of any Jewish male. So uh, Jesus had a Jewish grandfather, but he did not have a Jewish biological father. Isn't that a little bit crazy? So it was through the woman that the Jewishness of Christ came to him. Circumcision was the mark of the knife on that reproductive capacity of every Jewish and every believing, whether you're Jewish by race or not, it's do you want to be part of the Israelite covenant? Every male part of that covenant needed to be cut with a knife to carry the mark on his body that it is by the reproduction of Jewish people, or at least people of the Israelite covenant, that the Savior of the world was going to come. Every Jewish male 
would think, it could be me, it could be my family. Because after Jacob's line, nobody knew who was going to be it. I mean, Abraham knew, my son Isaac, the son of promise, he will be the carrier. So he's like carrying uh, Christ in seed form inside him. And he passed it on to, he had two boys, but Jacob and Esau, and Esau was a bad boy, and he ended up not receiving the birthright. So they all knew it was Jacob. Jacob prophetically was aware that Judah was going to be it. The scepter will not depart from Judah, he said. So that's a, a little hint that the king is coming from Judah. But after that, it could have been anybody from Judah. They didn't know. But your job was to keep it going so that there would be a child, a daughter of Abraham, capable of bearing the Savior of the world. And circumcision was that reminder. Remember, you are creating a nation to guard the promises, and you're creating a nation that will have a Jewish woman ready when the time has fully come. I think that's all what's behind the concept of why God was so demanding about circumcision. You must do this. And you were thrown out of the, the covenant nation if you would not do that. The second thing is God wanted to pound it into their heads that you are born in sin and that when a Jewish woman a woman of the Israelite covenant would give birth, she was considered to be unclean. Not physically unclean, but ceremonially unclean. It's as though God was blaming her for having brought yet more sin into the world. You just made another sinner. You just gave birth to another criminal. That's not to belittle motherhood. God had an extremely high view of motherhood. Remember, this is a teaching device to remind you that everyone, even children, need to be in the covenant of grace. And the sacrifices needed to be brought. Uh, for the boys, you had to wait for 33 days before you could appear in public and go back to the temple. For if you gave birth to a female, the rule was 66 days. I will leave it to you to discuss among yourselves on the way home why the time of uncleanness for girls was twice that of for boys. I do not personally have an opinion. Work it out amongst yourselves and get back to me next week. I'd love to hear what you come up with. The third was the presentation. And this drove the memories. It was a participatory memory of Passover night. When the Israelite slaves in Egypt were told, God's on the move tonight. If you want to be alive with your firstborn tomorrow morning, here is what you must do. Kill an animal, eat its meat in haste with a community. Nobody eats alone. Eat a communal meal with each other and with God. This is the Passover lamb that is going to die so that you live. And then take its blood and splatter it all over your doorpost. And the angel of death that night came. And everywhere in Egypt where that angel did not see lamb blood or goat blood, there was going to be a corpse the next day. But God said, remember, you owe me for that. And he chose to make a big deal out of it to tie them back to that act of liberation. This was participatory religious drama so that you would never forget where you came from, that I have turned slaves into free people. And that, of course, was a metaphor for the fact that through the, the slaughter of the Lamb of God, God turned you and me, slaves, 
doomed to hell, doomed to everlasting prison, into free people. But the ceremony of uh, redemption was that if you had a firstborn child who now had escaped the angel of death, you had to bring a substitute because those lambs back then were for that generation. So Mary and Joseph were poor. They were able to offer as sacrifices just two birds which could be bought cheaply in a marketplace. That's what they're doing in Jerusalem. Simeon sees them. Remember, he's the third holy messenger. And then Anna sees them. And so let's just hear what she had to say in verse 36. She's very old. Uh, She only had been married for seven years. Her husband died, and then she's a widow until she's 84. She was a prophetess. Not only males were given that ability to give information directly from God to, to the community. Anna was a proclaimer of the words of God and was, had been chosen and approved that she did, was not limited to information only in the Bible. Kids, don't try this at home. This is not something you can claim, aspire to, go to school for. God decided to pick certain human beings as apostles or prophets. You could not choose it for yourself. It was given to you by God's choice. And God picked this woman. And the fact that she was of an age when most people thought that she was not able to do anything important anymore, a lot of our elderly get kind of shoved off to the side that your time is over. Get out of the way, Granny. And this amazing woman has given us a pointing finger, an indicator to make sure we do not lose focus. She was allowed to see that the Savior of the world was there, but all, but again, like invisibly, Jesus was just another little bundle wrapped and being carried by his mama. Whatever was going on between heaven and earth and the, the contest between good and evil, Christ and Satan, sure couldn't see it. But the eyes of faith, the word of God, allowed her to see what's really going on. God is in human flesh. He has now declared his mission to rescue his lost children. We are indeed all lost. We must be found again. We are all in slavery. We all must be set free again. We are all mortal. We must be given our life back because we're all dying. The grave is The Bible says it's like a big monster, a gobbling monster with its jaws open and never has enough. It's going to eat us too. And we need life to counteract that death. And worst of all is the the verdict in Judgment Day in God's court of guilty hangs over all of you. It's been like tattooed onto your forehead. All of us need a Savior to take that tattoo off and instead speak the gentle, sweet gospel words of not guilty. And Anna said, he's here. She was in the temple every day, worshiping, fasting, and praying. There was nothing more important for this woman to do. And, you know, remember that going to the temple didn't mean she came inside and sat in the pews. She was out in the courtyard talking to people, working it, and probably all the regulars at temple worship knew, oh, there's Anna. There's Anna, see what she's got to say today. And she was an encourager and teacher, a prophet of the Lord. And again, but with nothing to look at, there was nothing to see. 
she came up to them at that very moment, gave thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And that's, I'd like to kind of wrap things up today with just celebrating that little phrase with you, the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is more than just its buildings. Those buildings have all been destroyed. There's hardly anything left today of the buildings that existed at Jesus' time. Jerusalem is the people of Jerusalem. And even more than that, it is a symbol of all of Judea and all of Israel and all the believers and all the world. Jesus came to redeem all. And redemption is a sweet word. What it really means is that you pay a price to set us free from all those nasty monsters, all those horrible things that I mentioned two or three minutes ago. Redeeming redemption means you pay the price to bring people you love out of their fear and out of their trouble. And Anna is like, don't let her age and probably her tiny little body, I, can, I, can, I just see Anna, this, this sweet old lady, but with a piercing eyes that would drill you right into you and with a, a loud voice from lots of practice pointing and saying, this is the redeemer of Jerusalem. All right, let's, let's wrap this up. So what? What do you think changed after everybody went home that day? Looked like nothing changed. Israelites were still occupied by the Roman soldiers. If you were poor the day before Jesus, Mary, and Joseph arrived at the temple, you were going to be poor the next day too. If you were crippled, your legs still wouldn't work that day. If you were frail and elderly and on your deathbed, you didn't suddenly become 20 years old again. If you were divorced or worse, a widow or a widower, your lost partner did not suddenly come floating out of the air and come back, walk back into the house. It might seem like nothing changed, but in fact, everything changed because God declared himself that he's committed to do whatever it takes to go all the way to give you assurance of being worth something. You matter to God. That's a big deal. No matter how much you get smacked and punched and slapped around in life, you can say, I'm valuable to God. What could be cooler than that? No matter how tough your health issues are, and in just a minute or two, we're going to be praying for a bunch of people with some terrible health issues. And Christmas did not magic, their, their Christmas celebration did not magically bling those all away. Man, there's invisible nasties too. I talked about all the invisible cool things about our world, electricity and gravity and all that stuff. COVID's invisible too, taking us down one by one. We're all in COVID loony land. These last two years have been just crazy time, haven't they? Disrupting everything. Jesus, if you're really there, why don't you just wipe all that out? It seems like nothing's happening, but in fact, because of Christmas, everything is happening. And Christ acquired a human body so that he could give it up for us. Joy, oh joy, beyond all gladness, Christ has done away with sadness. 
And through the word, through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of Simeon, we can see through what looks like nothing and see it's everything. Through this sweet old lady, can't wait to meet her, we are allowed to see the one who is about to redeem Jerusalem. Hence all sorrow and repining for the sun of grace is shining. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.